You're listening to Good Lad Unscripted with your host. <laughs> I'm Terry Goodlad, and welcome back to Goodlad Unscripted, the podcast. And welcome, if you've never listened to us before today, I've got a very special guest. It's not Anna today. It's somebody, uh, well, a lot, a, a lot less better looking than Anna. It's <laughs> <laughs> bad English. I've got my friend Mark Smith with me. Mark, uh, gosh, where do I start? I'm going to I'll give you a quick rundown of Mark's resume. First of all, this show is brought to you by blessedbodywear.com. I'll get that in because this guy's resume is so long. Uh, Mark, born and raised in Washington, D.C., um, got a congressional nomination to attend the Air Force Academy, graduated the Air Force Academy, became an F-16 pilot, uh, served three combat tours in the Middle East as an F-16 pilot, mm -hmm. came back as a F F-16 instructor, correct? Yes. Uh, got chosen to be or selected to be a member of the uh, Air Force Thunderbirds. Uh, after leaving the Thunderbirds, uh, was also selected. Uh, was one uh, you and thirteen other people were, were chosen that year to be uh, a White House fellow. That's correct. Which is a very difficult program to get into. We'll talk about that in a minute. So that year, you were special assistant to the director of NASA. I got to go on a, on a space shuttle launch, and I got to tour the whole space center in Houston, which was. I, I can't even begin to tell you how amazing that was. Some great trips. Um, and then you came back and you were uh, part of the aggressor squadron here in Las Vegas at Nellis Air Force Base, which is our, anybody that's seen the movie Top Gun, this is the Air Force version of that. And you were one of the instructors there. That's correct. Uh, you left the Air Force. Uh, as a lieutenant colonel, you retired and uh, you are now a pilot with Southwest. Yes. But the big one, <laughs> the big one is if you've ever uh, seen this African-American bald dude <laughs> refereeing a UFC fight, that's Mark referee. Smith. <laughs> the bald referee. Uh, now, of all those things, uh, okay, Air Force Academy, F-16 pilot fighting, uh, flying combat missions, uh, being a flight instructor, uh, being an Air Force Thunderbird, being uh, a White House fellow, being a Southwest pilot, and being a UFC ref. Which one is the most exciting? Which one do you like the most? Um, it would actually be probably the addition to that as being a dad. You've got four kids. I got four kids, two girls, two boys. Um, it's kind of hard to put a nail on which one is the most exciting, uh, but Man, I mean, your time. kids are everything to you. They're the center of your life, the and they're really the, the reason why you do everything. And you see that as your kids get older. You've got, you know, your oldest is Alexis. Alexis was uh, Miss Teen Nevada. Miss Teen Nevada two years ago. Yeah, and now she's doing really well in college. Yes. Um, but that's kind of your kids. That's every one of your kids yes. are doing really, really well. Blessed with four kids. And, I mean, as far as those other things, they're great accomplishments, and, you know, we try to continue to strive to do something incredible every day. Uh, but if you put all those together, you know, it's a balance. Do I enjoy being in the octagon, being a UFC or a Bellator referee or getting to fly an airplane? Man, that's a tough decision. I just know I'm very fortunate to get to do both of them. <laughs> you have a good life. I smile a lot. Yeah, I'll bet you do. Uh, now, we've been buddies. We met way back in, uh, we were trying to nail it down. It was 2002 or 2003 or 2004, one of those yeah. years. Uh, I did a story on you uh, for Flex Magazine. Mm -hmm. 
which took over a year to get published, but we finally got it published. It was a story on you and uh, Jamie Johnson. Yes. And Jamie was a crew chief and you were a pilot. You mm. were uh, Thunderbird number two. So you're in the number two jet yes. in the air, air demonstration team. Now, those that time as a Thunderbird pilot, that has to be pretty, you know, when you're used to the usual Air Force grind, mm. right? That had to be like, because you're traveling, you're in front of people all the time. It's such a social thing, which is so opposite to being a, you know, a, a, a combat pilot or, or mm-hmm. somebody that's training or anything like that, where you're, you know, basically it's an unsung job. It is. Right. Uh, but then all of a sudden now you're in front of everybody and adored by thousands. You know, what, what was that like for you? You know, it's amazing. Uh, you get to represent United States Air Force as well as uh, the entire military. Um, traveling with the Thunderbirds, gone usually four to five days a week, going out to air shows. And, you know, some places we would go, that would be the highlight of their year. They waited all year for the Thunderbirds to come there and put on an air show. Wow. But it's just not getting in the airplanes and, and doing a demonstration in front of the crowds. We also like to get there a couple of days early to be able to go out to the community and interact, go to high schools, go to hospitals, you know, some of the political representatives, non-political position, but we still like to go there and interact with those folks just to let them know what their United States Air Force was doing. Right. And it was pretty cool getting up in the air, flying, you know, sometimes 18 inches away from another airplane, choreographed music and the beauty of it, and to be able to get on the ground and just look at the faces, tears of, of joy, tears of admiration. Uh, you know, some folks never have seen that before. And in some cases, getting to see people in those positions, maybe a female pilot, maybe a minority pilot, maybe someone that they remind themselves of. Mm-hmm to sit back and say, someday I can go out and do that. And, you know, to get to have my friends and family, like you guys come out and watch us fly, man, it's a pretty amazing thing to do. Well, I think about, you know, that statement, you know, uh, seeing somebody that inspires you to do something. And, and as you're sitting here, I'm looking at this book. Uh, it's a book called Chappie. And it's the, uh, the Life and Times of uh, Daniel James Jr. Yes. Uh, he was a pilot. He was an African-American pilot at a time when... Uh, everywhere else in America was segregated mm-hmm. and it was before the civil rights movement. You know, that's when he was doing his thing and during yes. uh, that was his lifetime. And with that, you've got a picture here um, uh, of a, of a young boy sitting on a box dreaming of airplanes. Yes. And that you said that this is a, a graphic that you show every time you do a talk somewhere. Somebody gave me that picture. I'm guessing probably 30, 40 years ago and growing up in Washington, DC, you know, being a fighter pilot was probably not the greatest of <laughs> opportunities or realistic things that you would get to do. Uh, but I was in a position where someone gave me that picture. And then because of having great parents, my dad would do stuff like go out and buy model airplanes for my brother and I to, to wow. build. And I'd fall asleep at night looking up at my light blue sky ceiling with airplanes that we had hanging down. And now I get this picture. And I add that to my parents took me to an air show and I got to see the Thunderbirds. And I was able to sit back and tell myself, wow. that's what I want to go out and do. And just the right course of studying hard in school, making some of the right choices and decisions, parents, mentors, friends helping me. I got accepted into the Air Force Academy where I was given my first experience to fly an airplane. So here I am, a young punk kid from Southeast Washington, D.C. Right. That gets a chance to go out and fly an airplane. And I just loved it automatically. That's crazy. And throughout the years, things just progress. Uh, a lot of hard work going in the right directions led to another thing. And 
there I was as Thunderbird standing out in front of a million people cheering at you and asking for autographs and stuff. So that was pretty surreal. Now, I've met your mom and dad, uh, and I want to ask, uh, and, and, and I, 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 I've seen glimpses of your relationship with both. Uh, you and your dad like to butt heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> like it, I don't know, but you, certainly you, you... A little. <laughs> you, you both accomplished at that. Who was the greater influence in your life as a boy? Uh, it was probably both of them. Mm-hmm. You know, cause, in what way? Uh, it's weird. I probably would butt heads with my dad because he and I were almost identical. Right. You know, I was going to say that. but <laughs> Yeah, he was insisted upon... Uh, they were not disciplinarians, but... Uh, they would enforce me making right decisions. And as I go back and look at it now, you know, some 30, 40 years later, my dad as a professional was molding me for making right decisions in life, uh, along with my brother. What did your dad do? Uh, So my dad was the risk and safety manager for Metro, which is the bus and subway transportation system in D.C. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, a very important part of D.C. D.C. couldn't run without his public transportation system. And he was the risk and safety manager for all of that. So this is a guy that's very meticulous. Yes. So now, now you, you guys don't know Mark. I know Mark. Uh, you know, I, I always think that, you know, in, in your bathroom that you're in there squaring up the toilet paper to make sure the squares are exactly at 90 yes, degrees. And I do. <laughs> I still make my bed every morning too. <laughs> but yeah, you are very meticulous about everything you do. The upside to that. Now I, you know, and I'm a, I'm that way. I'm not to the degree that you are, mm-hmm. but I'm that way. And I face a lot of criticism for that. Like I need to relax and things like that. And my argument always is, is, Hey, if you walk into Vons to buy groceries and you're looking at the canned bean aisle, mm-hmm. you know, if there's one can twisted slightly off to the front and it's not faced properly, nobody will buy that can. That's right. Why would you expect less for yourself? And I kind of equate it to making those decisions, how it helps me today. And you go back to being a Thunderbird. Let's talk about that. One non-meticulous decision, you know, and the boss starts to turn and I don't meticulously turn at the same time as him, that could be catastrophic. Or in wartime, if I got troops in close contact and I'm going to drop a bomb and it needs to be 100% exact meticulous, I have to do that because in our business, lives could be on the line. Right. Or even flying for uh, Southwest right now, um, making the right decisions, in this case, to keep our passengers as comfortable as possible to make them want to come back and fly with us, making an enjoyable experience or in uh, the octagon refereeing a fight. You know, we've all had good fights. We've all had bad mm-hmm. fights that we could learn from. You know, if I make a mistake on something and it costs a person that fight, that fight could cost them their decision, whether they stay with the organization, that's their means of living. Uh, so what I try to do in those circumstances is one, get trusted sources because mm-hmm. Everyone's going to have their opinion, especially in the fight game. Half the fans are going to love you. Half the fans are going to hate you, depending right. upon who that, you That's any sport, right? Exactly. But I, I have a cadre of people, including you, some other close friends, that I want that, uh, that feedback to tell me how I'm doing. Because my goal is to not just get in there and be a famous guy, you know, get to stand on TV and have Bruce Buffer call your name or something. I want to be the best in the business, just like I was doing when I was flying fighters, just like I wanted to do as a Thunderbird, just like I try to do at Southwest Airlines to be the best at what I can do. And I, that was instilled to me as a very young age uh, from my dad. But also in that same light, my mom was a hero as well, who was a, an educator, teacher for you know 35 plus years. And I look at the amount of education that I've had over the years at the Air Force Academy, a couple of graduate degrees after that, what I try to instill in my children right now Man, they molded me great as a young kid, and it's something really? I try to keep pressing forward to today. 
Yeah. No, I see that. I see, you know, I've seen you raise your kids. And, uh, I mean, since we did that photo shoot, we've been friends, mm-hmm. right? And and uh, very involved in each other's lives. And um, I, I see your mom and dad now. And, yes, they're older mm-hmm. and probably more relaxed than when you were a kid. Yes. But... You know, just being in the same room with them makes me want to sit up straight and eat my vegetables. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They yes. just carry themselves that way. Uh, and you carry yourself that way. And I think of of the, you know, when the standard is set at your very best mm-hmm. rather than 80% of your very best, you'll rise and be your very best. If you set it at 80, 80 you'll rise and, and it'll be 80. Yes. You know what I mean? It's just that you get to do amazing things in life. And and there are times, like you say, flying an airplane, you know, mm-hmm. like... Uh, it's uh, you know we you're talking about the comfort of your passengers, but in a split second something could go horribly wrong, and then you have to save the lives of those passengers. Yes. If you're not, who do you want up there? <laughs> you know the guy that tried fifty percent, or the guy that did a hundred percent. Exactly. You know what I mean? I want the guy that did a hundred percent every time. Right? You know, at my so is, my my point is is that. I I can't imagine the, the what abuse you've taken because of you're a meticulous guy and you want to do things well and you your standard is very high for your yourself it's very high for your kids yes. but look at what your kids have achieved in life exactly and they're happy kids they're happy well adjusted kids they're very happy now it's not you know a hundred percent strict all the time right it's, we have a lot of fun but something my parents told me as a very young age, which I you know, try to equate to my kids right now. My mom used to say, set your expectations low and you're probably going to achieve them every single time. Exactly. You set them high, set that bar high. And those are some things that I've done. Was it realistic percentage, you know, chance opportunity for a young kid from Southeast Washington, D.C. to grow up and be a fighter pilot, to be a Thunderbird, to be an airline pilot? Not necessarily. Well, and let's talk about, you know, just give me some reference if you're not from D.C., what kind of area did you grow up in? Uh, so I grew up in D.C. in the 80s. And at that time, if you remember, Washington, D.C. was the murder capital of the world, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. There were gangs, there were shootings, there were drugs, there were bad influences in our nation's capital. Mm-hmm. You know, you go five blocks away from the Supreme Court or the White House, and there's some very torn, ridden areas. It's a war zone. Gangs, yeah, at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because my parents were such a good influence, they kept us in a bubble, not away from all that stuff. We could still see it and understand it to be able to make those right choices. But they put us on the right path to be successful in life. They laid the foundation for my brother and I to do some great things in life. And not just us, but our friends in the neighborhood as well. You know that old adage of it takes a village? Right. You know, one of the parents up the street <laughs> see me do something wrong, they could check me and put me back in the right position as now, well. Now, check you means... Uh, well, <laughs> well, back in the day, <laughs> back in the day, <laughs> they had this little thing of you go up the street and get your own switch. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was you go get a, a little branch or something. And, yeah. And, you know, as time has progressed, I, I can tell you, I don't spank my kids. Right. You know, I don't. I'm even to the point now where I don't even have to put my kids in timeout or, you know, punishment or anything like that. It's it's different thing because our kids are in a different age of today. So they're different influences you know, the phones are a big thing or their vehicles a big thing or not being able to go out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as times have progressed, the way we discipline 
and teach our kids the right way have changed a little bit, but the principles are still the same. Well, you teach them consequence. You you provide them with consequences without them having to pay the much deeper price that they would pay in the real world. Yes. So you provide them with a consequence, so they understand there's a consequence to every decision that you make. Yes. Cause and effect, right? Yes. And so you provide them with that consequence. Absolutely, and that's education. It's a continued education process. You know, I know you and and Anna have talked to like my kids about a bunch of things when yeah. Alexis was going through the mm-hmm. pageant world and you know, taking photographs and stuff like that, being able to sit down with a professional who has been there and done that are critical things that we as friends and family provide for each other. Or if I'm going through something, an issue, it's never any hesitation to pick up the phone or send you a text Mm -hmm. and and get it off my chest and always listen to some constructive feedback. Now, I say that carefully, constructive feedback, because we got some people that you want to throw that out to and you don't want their two cents because it's not going to be productive. But because of that foundation, back to what my parents gave me, you know, other parents in the neighborhood, aunts, uncles, et cetera, I was able to go on the right path. And man, I'm just, I'm fortunate to have lived a good life and so much more in front of me. Okay, I've got to ask, when you were a kid and told your dad for the first time you wanted to be a fighter pilot, did he, did he say, ha okay, great, well, you need to do, you know, let's get your, you know, did he try to steer you to the safe, to the safe side of the street or did he jump on and support that 100%? You know, it wasn't non-support at first Mm -hmm. it was because i was an athlete i went Uh to a very famous high school went to damatha high school in maryland which if you've never heard of damatha high school at the time my coach morgan wooten was the winningest basketball high school coach in the country i mean he had you know eight nine hundred victories under his belt national championships danny ferry Colton valentine uh, you know, Markel Foltz, who plays for the 76ers. Now, all these kids have come from DeMatha, and it was a very prestigious school, both academically and athletically. And so he the, assumed you were going to take that path? At that, and also ran track and field, mm-hmm. uh, played tennis for a little bit. So it was more likely that I was going to go somewhere and try to play a sport. I mean, it is a, a academic and athletic production machine mm-hmm. because there's such a great foundation in academics, the students that can be athletics and scholars, have a great opportunity to go somewhere and do something amazing. So that was probably the path that I was going to take. Yeah. Now, I just kind of lucked into it because my older brother, who's four years older than me, actually started looking at the academies. He looked at the Naval Academy. He looked at Air Force Academy. So as a family, we already had an understanding of what the academies expected. And I was able to understand academically right from the start as a freshman that my grades had to be on par in order to get looked at at an academy because they won't take just average right. they want above average as a cream of the crop in your high school you go to the academy and you're there now with 999 other cream of the crop well you've got to get that you've got to get a recommendation as well from it's a you said it's a congressional senatorial presidential nomination right which now, now how do you get one of those uh, you you have to have an opportunity to speak to one of those folks mm-hmm. uh, your senator your congressperson and then they have these what are called grassroots programs where the academy uh, representatives go out and they tell parents and the high school students about the academy. Mm-hmm. And you have to go through the process with them. It's a ton of paperwork, which fortunately my parents helped me get through. But then you're going to go through a formal interview as a junior or early senior in high school and sit in front of your senator or congressperson wow. and ask them for their support for you to be nominated to go to the academy. To sit there and do that, you have to have confidence. You have to have confidence. Where do you get the confidence from? Um, That goes back to those skills that whoever it is, you know, parents or or whoever nurtures you to get to that point, 
your teachers, which are going to mm-hmm. be important, your friends, the interactions. And, man, there's so many decisions that go into it. You have to be able to articulate yourself. You have to be able to speak properly. You have to write down essays. Why do you want to go to the Air Force Academy? Right. And today it's a little bit different. And I try to teach this to my kids. The decisions that they make on social media right. can affect them five, ten years from now. Right. So especially whatever pictures you post or whatever you write, is that going to affect you five years from now? So, you know, especially with my oldest daughter, Alexis, who's doing pageants, who's doing photo shoots, who's signing with agencies. Yeah. I'm like, don't ever sign up for anything now or don't make any decisions now on a photo shoot or something like that. Right. That could compromise <clears throat> your integrity. That could affect what you're going to do five, ten years from now. Do you expect one of your kids to be president? I don't think they want to go that direction. Um, because I try to be, I'm a student on politics, especially in today's environment with the good and bad and ugly, everything that's mm-hmm. going on. Yeah. You know, fortunately we're done with election season, so <laughs> I can stop getting the 50 phone calls a day and all the stuff in my front door. Right. Um, but I tell my kids make political decisions based on information, not just whatever political party that you choose, which is right. why we're so problematic in some of the issues that we go with today. Are you left wing? Are you right wing? Do you watch, you know, CNN or do you watch Fox News? I try to tell them to get educated. Don't pick a team. <laughs> don't, don't pick a team. Make, and yeah, that because was the, the team is fallible. Yes. And yeah. that was the great thing about my position at the White House. It was a bipartisan position mm-hmm. where I got to see the politics, but I didn't have to answer to the politics. I could make decisions. I could make budget stuff, et cetera, based on just me doing my job. Mm-hmm. And when they sit there and listen to me or watch something, you know, they get a lot of influence from parent mm-hmm. or potentially what they hear at school, a teacher or, you know, this kid over here, his dad may watch Fox News every night. So he gets this opinion ingrained in him every single night. The person sitting on the left of them may watch CNN every night and gets this type of opinion. I try to tell them to sit down and get the right answer. You know, mm-hmm. somebody heard this or they said that. No, go out and actually research it so you can have an educated, informed decision. And man, just to try to mold them for to make informed decisions when the time comes and we just have a little fun with it as well especially if somebody on tv says or does something stupid Mm -hmm. like that's the person that you don't want to be let's let's do this the right way that's great i mean i i think that's a i want to say an unusual thing to take that approach to politics what if your kids voted different than you would that be a problem for you uh it wouldn't what you know uh, and that's a great example because of their core belief maybe they they did all the research and they just felt differently than you did yes uh and as it so happened, my oldest is voting for the first time. She mm-hmm. just voted for the first time this year. Right. And I, I think, uh, you know, some of the questions that came up, maybe the information that she got or the background into it was a little bit different than mine. But I tell them I will help educate them on the issues, mm-hmm. but I will never influence them on the issues. Um, and as they get older, I hope I've prepared them enough to be able to open up their eyes and who they're going to vote for. You know, a big one for us here in the state uh, was the – the regulated energy. Right. You know, the, how is it going to affect our bills? And right. having a child that lives in California now that has similar energy concerns, you know, rolling blackouts and high utility bills and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, that issue probably meant a little bit more to her than someone who doesn't get affected by that stuff. So I just want them to have a good foundation, good education. But I mean, you're those. patterning a, a behavior as well. Yes. It's not influencing one way or the other. Um, it's, it's patterning a behavior to yes. don't just swallow what you watch on Fox or CNN. Absolutely. You know what I mean? You, there's, there's a, 
countless resources out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, C-SPAN is a great source of information, you yes. know, but there's, there's lots of great information out there. It's just find a trusted source and educate yourself. It's good balance. And I think my kids are, are fortunate where they see me being very diverse. Mm-hmm. I could sit there and enjoy a cartoon with my kids, mm-hmm. or I could sit there and watch C-SPAN where they talk about Supreme Court decisions. Right. And I'm like, I'd like to be able to talk to you about all those things. I like to be articulate in a lot of them. And you know, that came up when I applied for that position at the White House and was selected. Mm-hmm. Man, they could ask you anything like, what's your favorite cartoon? To what do you do to lower your cholesterol? To how do we solve the national budget? To what do we do to get our teachers more resources in the classroom financially? And man, if, you don't, if you're not well-versed and educated on a bunch of different things, you know, essentially a jack of many trades, mm-hmm. you could be in a position where you may... You don't have an answer. <laughs> you don't have an answer. And, you know, the, the great example, and I'm not picking on anyone here, but if you watched that last debate down in Texas, uh, they asked one of the candidates, name something that you've done that you're proud of, you know, outside of politics and, you know, mm-hmm. maybe down with your family. And he sat there for about, you know, 15, 20 seconds and couldn't come up with anything. And it got to the point where it was very uncomfortable. Yeah. I don't ever want to be like that. I don't ever want to be the guy that focuses on just my flying 100% of the time or the UFC refereeing. I want to make sure I got a good balance of things that are going on. Now, somebody would say, you know, why? Just live your life. You know, like I've been told, like, I'm a photographer. I'm a writer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's see, what else? I'm a webmaster. (laughs) I'm a videographer. Uh, I ride Harleys. I, you know, do the MMA thing, uh, you know, weightlifting, fitness, you know, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And and there's a whole other ball of, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that, you know, I'm a history buff. I'm a World War II history buff, Vietnam War, you know, military history buff guy. And uh, I do educate myself on politics. Mm-hmm. And and then I get criticized for it because, oh, jack of all trades, master of none. But I think I think in this world, you can't afford to just be a master of one and be a well-rounded individual. That, that, that's my argument. And yeah. I know whoever's listening to this, I know you probably disagree because I've gotten crap from a lot of my friends uh, about that. But the thing of it is, is that I think you short yourself on, there's so much information out there. And a lot of people from my generation mm-hmm. look at that as a nuisance. And I'm thinking, no, man, this is a windfall. This yes. is the lottery. You know, anything you want to know is at your fingertips now on Google. Yes. So why would you not want to absorb as much as you possibly can? And, yep. and I hear so many other people say, that's just too much information. You know, I just want to simplify things and no, no less. And yes. it's like, well, that's a personal choice, but I would rather know more. And especially raising a child. Yes. You know, because you don't know the path. They're not going to live your life. Yeah, absolutely. You know, all your four kids are going to live individual lives. Alexis is doing something that Olivia won't. Yes. And, and uh, Matthew and CJ will go their own directions. And, and so how do you counsel them and be the authority or, 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 or strong reference in their life if, you don't, if you're not well-versed in the things that they're going to encounter in the path that they choose? Absolutely. And that is most important to me my kids and being a great single dad to them, giving them a great foundation to be successful in life. And, and honestly, I mean, you know, my four kids, Mm -hmm. that's four different personalities. Completely. Um, you know, great kids. There are, you know, certain things that we focus on with one of the kids that I may not have to worry about, uh, with another kid, you know, 
the girls who look like they could be twins are polar opposites. Polar one's opposites, a model, yeah. one does stuff like that. The other one's an athlete. But in the middle, they're great students in the classroom. <laughs> and, you know, I had this talk with one of my White House fellows, uh, classmates a couple years back. He has two daughters as well. And I said, do we want to focus on one thing? Goes back to that analogy of the jack of all trades, but mm -hmm. master of none. And he said, well, I would disagree with that statement because you have had the opportunity to master in a couple different places. Master being a fighter pilot, mm -hmm. master by being selected as a White House fellow, master by making it to a position where you're good enough to be a UFC referee, mm -hmm. or when you go out and fly your Southwest Airlines airplane, or more importantly, how you're doing as a single dad raising four children. Mm -hmm. So I think if you apply yourself, you know, you don't want to ever stretch yourself too thin or have too many coals on the plate, whatever analogy you want to use there, to not be good at any particular one that you're doing. But I think if you're versed enough and you're comfortable enough spreading yourself and working on all those, like for me personally, I can't attest or speak for other people, I'm fine doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think I would get a little bit bored if I don't put a new challenge on the, on the plate. Mm -hmm. You know, as my kids start to get older and they start to go out and do their own thing, there are other opportunities that I want to, you know, focus on. Mm -hmm. But right now I say I got some pretty fun ones. First and foremost, having fun and getting my kids ready for life. And then the UFC stuff and the flying, you know, I take pride in each and every one of those. Work hard at it to be good at each one of those. And, man, it's a joy just, you know, waking up every morning because I know I got something good on the plate coming up. Mm -hmm. And like I say, you're the guy I want in the cockpit if I'm going anywhere. <laughs> come on. Come fly with us. <laughs> right. uh, I want to talk about um, uh, going back to the White House Fellowship. Now, that's a program I think a lot of people have not heard of because when I talk to them about you, mm -hmm. uh, I, I haven't run into anybody that know, has ever heard of the White House Fellowship Program. What is it and how do you, how do you get selected for something like that? So what most people have probably heard of is the White House Internship. And, you know, unfortunately, it became famous uh, because during the Clinton administration, the issues that he had was with uh, a White House intern. Right. That is a little bit different position where those are young kids that simply go uh, into the White House or other parts of the administration uh, to work. But still a learning process to do that. The White House Fellowship uh, started back, you know, 50, 60 years ago was a senior mentoring program, the highest level of a leadership program that could be selected in the country. And essentially what you are is you are handpicked and appointed by the president of the United States to serve in their administration. And their goal is to put you somewhere in their, in their administration where you can work with the principal, the cabinet secretary, the administrator, whatever, right next to them and get a firsthand look at decision-making, politics, budget, et cetera, for a cabinet level position. So they let you apply a couple of different places. I applied at uh, the FBI, the CIA, and NASA, and I was selected to go to NASA. Well, now I served as a senior White House representative or a senior advisor to the NASA administrator. And for me particularly, it was a great position because he gave me the utmost experience and exposure that. to everything that he was doing. Uh, and what I did is I wrote out the budget plan for the entire NASA administration uh, that year, all the programs, everything that was on the books, everything that was going to be funded by Congress to present back to Congress in easy format for them to understand what NASA had planned for them. And as it just so happened, that year that I was going to do it, 
that was going to be the last year of budget for the space shuttle. Wow. So you can imagine, you know, the importance, significance of the space shuttle to our country, to uh, international uh, space flying with space station, you know, other cosmonauts, astronauts, et cetera, coming to fly with this. It was a critical decision to hand a budget over to Congress where the space shuttle was no longer going to be a part of it. Controversial, but a necessity to be able to move on because of, you know, budget, safety, et cetera. That thing was coming to the end of its, you know, uh, flying shelf life. Right. And we had to move on past that. So I was loved by some people and I was hated, hated by, by some people. Yeah. Um, and as you can imagine, you went to Cocoa Beach with me mm-hmm. uh, for launch. You know, the difference in that community right now because the space shuttle program is no longer flying. Right. Um, but it would have just been a matter of time. But to now take uh, something. Every space program has moved on to the next y- one. Yes. You know, Mercury to Apollo to, you yes. know. Yes, as we had to. Right. Um, now you equate that back to the focus of the program. Me as a, at the time, major in the United States Air Force, getting an opportunity to represent the president at one of his cabinet positions at NASA to make those decisions. But, and that wasn't just a focus. They would also bring us back weekly to have, you know, private conversations, lunches, et cetera, mm-hmm. with senior officials, Connelly's Rice, Colin Powell, the president himself, you know, you can imagine you're a cabinet secretary and you want to get on the president's calendar for today. They were like, oh, OK, you can have seven minutes today to speak to the president. Right. But your questions have to be limited to this. And regardless of your political affiliation, we'd go in there sometimes and the President Bush mm-hmm. uh, son would sit in there with us for 60 minutes, 90 minutes. Wow. Just to talk about. I remember seeing a picture, the picture of you. Um, standing in the Oval Office or the Roosevelt Room. Mm-hmm. And you were sitting in a boardroom. Yes. And particular photo. It it was incredible for me because you go back to that growing up in Southeast Washington, Mm D.C., on the other side of the Anacostia Bridge, Mm -hmm. John Sousa Bridge, being able to look out my back window and see the Washington Monument, the Capitol, the White House, as a young punk kid growing up in D.C., to now here I am 30 years later sitting in the White House in the Oval Office talking to the President of the United States. Did you ever say thank you under your breath while you're sitting here with the President, say thank you, Mom and Dad? I, I did. <laughs> and, you know, I, I got some great pictures of uh, being able to bring my parents on a tour mm-hmm. into the West Wing. So here we are. You know, my dad's standing there with his chest out, proud of his boy, getting to bring them back in the White House. Wow. And all those, you know, button heads as a, as mm-hmm. a young child and all that stuff. What was it preparing me for? It was preparing me for an opportunity to be successful where now I could go back and say, thank you, mom and dad, for, you know, all those informative years, all those, you know, discussions about doing good in the classroom, excelling at sports, keeping yourself mentally, physically uh, able to be able to come back and pay this back 30 years later and proudly walk my parents to the White House and say thank you or have them see me and, you know, standing on the front row of the air show and mm-hmm. get out of the plane and my mom and dad are standing there crying because mm-hmm. now my son's a fighter pilot and I got to see him be a Thunderbird, mm-hmm. which was significant because, you know, a lot of people don't know this and, you know, sometimes you don't want to have to equate things back to color. Uh, but I was the third African-American Thunderbird in the history mm-hmm. of the team. And it had been, you know, at that point, 50 years in 50 years of the team. Mm-hmm. And it had been 20 years since there was an African-American pilot, the last one being Pete Peterson, who was killed when the diamond crashed uh, out, out at Indian, Indian Springs. Springs. Yes. Um, and that may not mean a lot to a lot of people, but it does mean I think a lot. it's very telling, isn't it? It, it is telling of uh, opportunities, 
but also if you know someone's in a position where they believe their barriers are holding them back, I think that's a classic case. So if you got to break through that barrier, you got to do everything you can to break through that. Mm-hmm. And not just the point of standing there and being a pilot of color, but that next young kid who stands there in Southeast Washington, D.C. or, you know, Muskogee, Oklahoma, wherever you want to go and see someone like that. It becomes a realistic dream, a goal to them that I don't care what I'm facing right now. That guy did it. That young lady did it. I can do it. I can do it. Fifi Malakowski, who was the first female Thunderbird pilot, you know, and you remember the struggles of allowing, getting to a position where they called it allowed, Mm -hmm. but making it now eligible for females to be fighter pilots, combat fighter pilots in whichever service, you know, we broke those barriers and now she stands out there as the first female Thunderbird pilot shows, you know, some young lady standing on the audience who may want to do the same thing. I can get it done as well. So, but I'm not done yet. I want to keep, you know, having great things to be able to talk. We're going to get into next. I mean, we're going to run over today and I don't really care because this is a good talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, combat. Um, you were in the uh, uh, Desert Storm, right? Uh, actually, after that, it was Northern Watch and Southern Watch. Okay. Uh, now, leaving, you know, taking off and, and going on a mission, you're fully loaded, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, at that time, there was not lots of air and air-to-air combat. It was mostly bombing missions. Is that correct? Bombing missions. Close and air support. Yeah. Well, I didn't do close air support. At the time, I was at Shaw Air Force Base. Uh, where we did uh, suppression of enemy air defenses. Okay. You know, where they would try to shoot up missiles at us. And Shooting SAMs. We were the hunter killers. Okay. We'd find them, they'd shoot something at us, we'd shoot something back. What so was that like? Target. Talk about that experience. You know, I, I, I mean, doing that job, there's a very good chance yes. doing that particular job. That's probably one of the higher risk jobs as an Air Force pilot, correct? That and close air support. Right. Uh, because of the proximity to the enemy. Right. And I think about it different now than I did back then. Back then, it was our preparation. So just like you're going to prepare to take your SATs or some other you mm-hmm. know, test in school, the preparation that we did to get ready for that out here in Nellis Air Force You're Base. talking about, oh, I see, preparing training. Yeah, putting, putting yourself in realistic situations like red flag or green flag or mm-hmm. back home, you know, fighting against the enemy, having a simulated surface-to-air missile shot at you. Mm-hmm. That training that the Air Force did, you know, that my flight commanders and you know, whoever my flight lead was, getting me prepared for that, put me in a position to be ready. Now, it's obviously no real bullets or anything like that being shot at you, but I was prepared as possible the first time I took off and crossed over in enemy grounds. Now, it became realistic when, you know, my warning systems lit up for the first time. I was going to ask you about that. Now, how many seconds typically are you going to have? It depends on how far away they are. Um <clears throat> You know, range, a range, a range of, of uh, like 10 seconds, five seconds, 20 seconds. Uh, if it's, you know, five, 10 seconds, that means someone's shooting a sword of launch missile at you. Well, you may not get that indication. You got to look outside and be able to see it. Gotcha. But if it's one of the bigger, you know, telephone pole type yep. missiles that's being shot at you, it, it just depends on how close they are. You know, if they're real close to you, it could be a matter of seconds that you have to. Now, you obviously have a protocol that you train for. Yes. Uh can you train for the adrenaline rush <laughs> that you get, or is there an adrenaline rush when when that when that warning uh, goes off? You you do have a sense of adrenaline rush, mm-hmm. but you want to be so well versed at what to do that you do the same procedure every time to save your life. Maneuver, okay. deflect, so as to keep from getting hit. 
Gotcha. Uh, because, you know, regardless of what your personal beliefs are, they're shooting something to kill you. Right. To prevent you from, you know, dropping bombs and, you know, affecting their way of war. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first time when I walked out there in the desert and looked at my plane and had real bombs on it or real missiles on it, that's an eye-opening experience. Now, you know, here I am years later. The biggest thing that I think about now, especially when, you know, our love and passion for mixed martial arts and hand-to-hand combat right. is what do you do if you got shot down? How would you act? You know, we think about we just lost, you know, mm-hmm. Senator John McCain, who right. war hero, incredible story. You know, if you've never read up on his story, what happened to him having the misfortune of getting shot down. But what he persevered through, uh, he and the other folks that were in the, uh, Hanoi Hilton, man, I don't care what anybody says about him. Incredible mm-hmm. hero, incredible endurance, incredible hero, perseverance. Yeah. You know the injuries that he sustained. I mean, where he, he was shot down, he just didn't have. He was in in a lake right in the middle of the city. Yes, and <laughs> and, and he got dragged. He had two broken legs, right? I, I don't know if it was two or one, but the fortune yeah. of the civilians in the town caught him first, mm-hmm. which would have been worse for him. Now, when he got captured back by the military, there was a sense of being saved there because you know there's civilian justice in the middle of town. Right. But now you go back to the military, it's going to be a tribunal or whatever, and they wind up putting them in, in prison for a number of years. Right. For me, it's the, you know, we all had scuffles and stuff, you know, when you're growing up and on the street having fights and everything. It's different. Mm-hmm. Because I listen to some of the stories about uh, people who have gotten captured. You know, one of the guys said he got captured and they were asking him information that he didn't know. Mm-hmm. He said they came up behind him with a hammer and hit him in the back of the head full steam with the hammer. And he said, you know, in the cartoons when you used to watch, you know, somebody get hit in the head with a brick and the Tweety Birds would fly around? Yeah. He said, that's how it was. I literally saw stars or whatever flying around my head. That's a little bit different perspective than right. getting a fight with somebody growing up in Washington, D.C. Right. You know, it's it's real. You know, just like our first responders, men and women in law enforcement have to go through. Right. You know, you can train all you want, but the first time you're in the chase or somebody pulls a weapon on you, perspective is different and it's well i remember i remember my first fights as a as a cop Mm -hmm. and and it's a lot different because it's not it's like in the neighborhood it's you and some other guy Mm -hmm. you probably know him you're just angry and that's what it is or it's just being you know ego right it's just that stuff there it's just you're just a piece of meat and there's no there's no attachment i was just a uniform Mm -hmm. and they're just going to defeat that uniform and for me at that point when you see the the absolute violence of that and no regard for safety or life or anything, it's not a human, they're not hitting a human being. They're not hitting me as a person. They're yeah. hitting a cop, Yes. right? And they want to take that cop out. And that's a whole other level, again, of, of experience. So I understand what you're talking about. but And it's, um, you know, just kind of put it in, you know, final perspective there. If you get shot down or something bad like that happens, can you be fully prepared for it? Gosh, no. As prepared as possible. Right. You know, to go through the practice prisoner war camps, to, you know, be physically fit, to know your procedures in order to be able to get rescued, one, for your personal safety and life. Right. But to get yourself in a position to be able to go back and do your job. But it is a voluntary force today. Mm-hmm. And you volunteer to do that. You have to want to do it. You have to want to be a law enforcement officer to put yourself in harm's way. Mm-hmm. You know, you listen to some of the stories out in Thousand Oaks with the bar shooting. Mm-hmm. Those, you know, the brave off-duty police officers who did not have their weapons, who chose to shield mm-hmm. some of the young folks there. 
that's something that we volunteer for. Um, right. You know, everyone is not cut out to do that. But those that do it, my brothers and sisters that served in the military with me, regardless of what service that you're in, you know, it's an amazing thing that you do. It's an amazing thing to be a law enforcement officer. And, and you know, we have incidents every now and then where uh, some people make decisions that, you know, give a an opinion about law enforcement or military. <laughs> but, you know. I know my, where you're going with this. Well, it, you... you you want to be in a position where mm-hmm. that's not the representation of all of them. You know, one of my best friends in the world uh, <clears throat> out in California is a police officer. And I don't know if you know this or not, but they had a, uh, an active shooter threat at Loyola Marymount the other day when my daughter goes to school. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so she called me and said there's a shooter on campus. Uh, she was safe, but, you know, obviously all the other kids are on campus. You know, first thing I did was ensure her safety. But then I picked up the phone and called my buddy who's a police officer. And I said, hey, this is what's going on. And he did his thing as a law enforcement officer. He did his thing as a friend, you know, as a mentor, a parental figure for my kids. And just as we always want to do for each other, he made Mm -hmm. sure the kids were good. So that same type of brotherhood, sisterhood, loyalty is the same kind of thing we would expect to do in the military. You know, something unfortunate would have happened to me. I know the survival forces would come out there and do everything they could to rescue me. Uh, but as I sit back and look at it, man, we did some crazy things back in the day <laughs> in the military, you know, flying at 500 miles an hour with bombs on the plane going to, you know, protect freedom out there. Right. And regardless of how you feel about that, it is to afford the opportunities and protect freedom uh, that we so much enjoy today that some right. people may take for granted. But that's no, and I think I think being over there, mm-hmm. uh, it's like it's like, you know, on a much smaller scale, being a cop, uh, there's a couple things that I took away from those experiences is number one, everybody has an opinion, mm-hmm. but you really don't know what you're going to do until you're in that car yes. and you're going through whatever you're going through yes. or getting out of that car. And that thing is happening. Uh, and even when my, my years on SWAT, it's, you know, there's still, you can train and train and train, but I've been in situations where we're going through a door and mm-hmm. you know, somebody just froze up. You know, the funniest you know? thing, as we equate it to other things that we do, we talk about being a UFC referee. You know, we obviously try to keep a professional relationship with the fighters. Right. You know, we try to train and do stuff like that to be prepared. But they call them gym sparring folks. Yeah. Versus actually in the octagon or <laughs> right. whatever the cage is. You got some folks that spar really good. Yeah. But when they get inside that, you know, that octagon it's or the cage. Different ball of wax. Different game. When that adrenaline dump happens. Yeah. And or you step in there and you're not used to seeing the twenty thousand people in there screaming and screaming. the sound the noise is deafening. Yeah. You you really can't appreciate the noise unless you're there. Unless you go to an event. Yeah, I used to cover those for uh, for a couple websites in a magazine, and uh, it was as soon as they said they're going live mm-hmm. on the pay per view, it just it was deafening. And like I'd a, put my hands over my ears, it was so loud. We got some, you know some of the judges sometimes to be able to concentrate fully on what they're looking at when we're earplugs to mm-hmm. tune everything else out. Yeah. Um, but I never realized until I got into a UFC fight and especially like UFC 200 was one of the biggest events that they did uh, to be ready for that. But again, I was fortunate just like my parents molded me for some things, just like my flight instructors molded me. I'm in a very a great position because of who my mentors are. You know, my two primary mentors in mixed martial arts are Big, Big John Dean. McCarthy and Herb Dean. Right. So as a referee, can you ask two for legendary referees? Anyone I mean, you better? Can than ask that? for better mentors. Yeah. And then you know, a great friend is Mike Beltran, one of the best referees in the business. So mm-hmm. when this group of folks teach you and prepare you 
just like you do in combat, you're ready for that. Yeah. So I can get inside the octagon right now. Every performance is not going to be perfect. That's why I strive to keep getting better every time. But all those other distractions, the you know, the twenty thousand people, or the lights, the camera, anything like that, the announcers saying something about you that you know this referee screwed up that. Mm-hmm. You got to tune all that out with the goal and the focus of having the perfect match. And my goal is I want to facilitate and force rules when I have to, but never be the reason for the outcome of a fight. Right. I just want to be able to raise the winner's hand, tell the folks great fight, but never make a mistake or do something causal to turn around or determine the outcome of a fight. It's challenging to do because we put in some tough situations. You know, whether I let a fight go too long or whether I stop it too early, you want to try to be right in that perfect position. But you got to remember what I'm there for to enforce the rules, but first and foremost to ensure safety of the fighter. But also to realize, man, this is the lifeline for some of these folks. This is how they feed their families Mm -hmm. and go about doing things. So I try to put myself... And also if you let something go a little too long... Uh, you know, somebody could get badly hurt or killed. Somebody get hurt, yep. And the great thing about our state right now, it's an influence from our leadership, Mm -hmm. is we don't want to ever get someone in a position like that where they're hurt long-term because of the inactivity or a referee not stepping in and doing something. And I go here in town. You know, I practice with some of the juniors when they're sparring. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's nowhere close to full game speed. It's still. It's preparation. I do everything I can, and, you know, because of those great mentors – preparing me and you know we constantly talk on the phone and give feedback and you know if I think I messed something up I got Herb Herb Dean's number in my phone I could pick up the phone and say hey what do you think he's been there and done this for 20 years or you know same thing for John McCarthy and I don't want any oh you did great there buddy as always you know I want (laughs) constructive feedback even if it's the smallest thing that's what helps you right yes you remember when we and then if you get a compliment you know it's honest yes and I, I kind of equated to all these opportunities coming together remember I used to tell you this People sit back and watch our air shows with Thunderbird, and they go, ooh, and ah, that was incredible. We'd get on the ground, and we'd have an hour and 45-minute debrief about everything we did wrong for the day because we never had the perfect air show. No Thunderbird team has ever had the perfect air show. No Blue Angel team has ever had that. There's never been a perfect instance of a referee doing everything 100% correct because when you settle for that, then you've reached your plateau Oh, and it was something if I you settle for 80%, you'll never see 100 Exactly. Yeah. So if I always find something not necessarily to be critical about, but I can improve upon, you know, whether it's my stance, my position during a submission, how quick I got in to stop a fight, you know, to my physical appearance, if I think I'm not, you know, being well represented with physical fitness, mm-hmm. I need to continue to improve upon that. It's an ongoing process, as is the case with many things in life. And I see that. Now, last question, and we're going to wrap it up. You chose the Air Force Academy. Mm-hmm. A lot of pressure there. It's not just it's not just burning up somebody's money going to school. You can't have a bad freshman year. That's correct. You can't do all the normal things that normal kids do when they go to college, mm-hmm. right? Um, high pressure, high pressure, high stakes. If you fail, mm-hmm. it's a big public failure, right? That's correct. Then you go into a profession where you're a fighter pilot. You're dropping bombs and you're protecting people on the ground and you're fighting for, if you make a mistake, <laughs> what is it? F-16 is 25 million bucks, right? Uh, as a minimum. The ones now are probably you know, more towards 35, 40 million. Okay. So you're crashing a multi-million dollar plane mm-hmm. and probably costing people their lives if you make a mistake. That's correct. Okay. Then you go to a job where you're teaching people 
not to make mistakes. So if you make a mistake with those guys, mm-hmm. it's exponentially greater because you're, it's not just your mistake, it's the mistake of them and everybody they come near to. Yes. Then you get into the Thunderbirds where you're flying literally at times 18 inches apart, which <laughs> just try doing that with your car someday with somebody. Drive down the road and do it. And, and try to turn corners with them and do all the maneuvers and stuff. And you're not going upside down, obviously, in your car, hopefully. But just try to do that someday and see how, how stressful it is. And you're doing it in an environment where there's winds and being buffeted and mm-hmm. you know heat waves and all, all kinds of different things. Uh, if you screw up, it's catastrophic and not, yes. not just humiliating for the Air Force, but it's catastrophic. Whenever there's a, a, either a Blue Angel or, or a Thunderbird crash and, and there's a loss of life, it's your whole legacy can yes. be destroyed if you make a mistake. That's cool. That's right? true. Mm-hmm. Now you go from that <laughs> to a White House fellow creating a budget for a, a major shift or major change in, in a space program. Mm-hmm huge, huge, you know, I mean, the president is looking now and the whole country, if you screw that up, if you make a mistake, then you get into, you're flying Southwest. If you make a mistake, people die. And again, that's your legacy forevermore, yours and your kids and everybody else. And UFC, (laughs) and now, of course, you're not a UFC referee, you referee USC fights, but you referee for other organizations as well. That's correct. You're, yeah, so you're you're licensed by the Nevada Commission, right? Yeah, Nevada or California Athletic Commission. Right, but you you do referee those high-profile UFC fights, and Mm -hmm. if you screw up, somebody could get killed, Mm -hmm. or, again, you're destroying somebody's career, right? Absolutely. Why do you... In continue to choose those kind of high stress. How old are you now? 49. Okay, 49. You're still choosing, choosing. You don't have to do any of these things. You're still choosing those extremely high stress jobs and why? You know, I guess the easiest way to say it is they are high stress jobs, but I try to never let myself get in a high stress situation. I keep having fun with it. Um, and is it because you have to, that, that intense level of preparation, is that what it is? If you're standing in front of the sword, you know, you got to learn how to walk on, on in front of a sword, right? Absolutely. It's, uh, you know. Is there an adrenaline rush there or is it, or is it just a high standard or what, I, what is it? I don't even think it's an adrenaline rush um, because I don't have to get myself hyped up, you know, to go do a UFC fight. I try to, I try to keep my blood pressure right where it is. Um, I don't have to do that to go fly the plane because it's such a joy. But I kind of equated back to I want to keep making my parents proud. I want them to be able to look at every single thing that I achieve. And, you know, they're my they're my my focus since day one. And I know, I know that's kind of a silly analogy, but they brought me into this world. And my goal is to keep making them proud because they are my greatest fans, but they're also my strongest critics because they have known me since day one. And I look at all these things that I've had an opportunity to do, but I keep telling myself I have not yet reached a mountaintop. I want to keep doing that. My parents work too hard for me to not continue being successful, and I'm going to wake up every single morning and keep striving for that to get myself in a position to keep doing some great things. And, you know, what my buddy told me, uh, my White House Fellows classmate, he's like, you've lived three different lifetime dreams all in one lifetime, mm-hmm. and they keep going. And I'm like, yeah, but I got so many more that I want to do, <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, it's fun being able to achieve these things and, 
as long as you can keep have fun with it, as long as I can pass on these opportunities, you know, you think about it, me being selected as a White House fellow afforded me the opportunity to bring my parents and my children into the White House. Mm -hmm. So now my kids have these pictures, you know, 10, 15 years from now with them sitting on the back lawn doing an Easter egg roll at the White House or me standing there in the Oval Office next to the President and the First Lady and getting to take a picture with them. Yeah, some of those are materialistic things, but they're memories that can be made for a lifetime. And now my kids can take these and want to strive to do some great things as well. And who knows what next I'm going to go forward and achieve. The goal for me is to be great at each one of those, but at the same time have fun while I'm doing it. And man, it's been a great ride so far. Do you have anything what's next? Do you have anything on, on the burner? Anything you want to talk about? You know, I, I've actually thought about going back to school and getting a PhD. Really? Uh, and I know that's a little bit Weren't you offered a, an honorary PhD at one point a few years ago? Uh, well, it wasn't an honorary PhD. What it was is uh, where I went to grad school. So I graduated from the Air Force Academy. And mm -hmm. everyone that graduates from the Air Force Academy has a Bachelor of Science because of all the math, science, and engineering that you take. Uh, but my focus uh, was uh, legal studies or pre-law. Mm -hmm. As you know, I thought about going to law school, uh, but I decided to go fly instead of that. And then I went out and got a couple of graduate degrees. I got one in uh, systems, computer management, and then I got the other one from the Naval War College in uh, international studies, uh, national security strategic studies. I remember that one. Uh, but because of some of the opportunities that I had, the school where I got my first master's program, brought me back and inducted me into their Hall of Fame where they offered up the opportunity to come back and get a, a doctorate degree. It's a matter of timing. It's a matter of finances. It's a matter of opportunities, whether I'm going to take it. But it's been dangling out there and something that's really been catching my attention. You know, I joke all the time. My, uh, my Southwest uniform, I got my initials uh, mm -hmm. on my name tag, and it's MD, MD Smith. Right. And folks are like, oh, now you're Dr. Smith. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's time to go do something and actually become a doctor. Be Dr. Smith. Yeah. But uh, as you notice, with that, I have fun with it. Right, you know, right. Something simple about putting, you know, my initials on it. It brings right. up conversation. It, it's, you know, strokes up discussion about, you know, why do you have that on there? And I'm talking, well, maybe it's another goal or something that I want to do. So, uh, so but cool. within the midst of that, A, being a great parent, mm -hmm. that's my primary focus in everything that I do. But these other opportunities that I have. Whether it's flying an airplane, whether it's being a you know a referee at a cage fight, and I don't care if it's an amateur fight or you know UFC 200 or Bellator 200, I want to be great in every single thing that I do in that. Not spreading myself too thin, but being able to wake up, have some great goals for that day, and more importantly, go to sleep knowing that I had a great day and accomplished some of that stuff, and was a good person overall. You don't want to do any of that stuff, but wind up being a you know <laughs> yeah a bad a person or anything yeah. like that. Uh, and I try to have put myself in a situation where friends can check me or, you know, give me that feedback if I mm -hmm. ever get in that situation. Cause man, I'll tell you what, it could be very easy to be cocky as a UFC referee, or it could be very easy to be cocky as a fighter pilot. Now, easy to be cocky to anything you did. Yes. Now I had a friend who gave me a great phrase. He said, confident yet unassuming. I'd rather be confident and good at what I do than cocky at it. And I try to, you know, teach that to my kids. And, you know, we talk about some of the life lessons that we pass on to our mm -hmm. kids. Like, don't be cocky. Be confident. And be able to accomplish it and get it done without having to open up your mouth and tell everybody how good you are. You know, it's hard to not pat yourself on the back when you're a Thunderbird or when you're a White House fellow and stuff like that. But I got some friends that don't even know that I've ever done that. Yeah. You know, they look on my Facebook page or something like that and go, like the other day, you know, I posted the picture for Veterans Day. Mm -hmm. 
and I put a Thunderbird picture on there, and I got friends that I've known for years or didn't fighters that I've known that didn't know I was a Thunderbird. Like, Whoa, where'd this picture come from? <laughs> and opportunities that I've been given in life. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, being humble about the opportunities that you have been given, but also being hungry to keep doing some more different things. So. Well, and I think, I think that goes part and parcel with uh, everything that I've seen you do. And it's from being a Thunderbird forward. Um, you know, you've been happy about those things. You've celebrated those things. Um, but you never looked at them differently than you did the last thing. Mm-hmm. It was always, okay, I got to be my best at this and this is what I'm going to do. And, and I see you take on even what I would call much simpler tasks mm-hmm. and you do them with a, such a level of excellence. It's inspiring to me, you know, to, to, to watch, you know, it makes me push up my game, mm-hmm. you know, and do better at what I do. And and uh, I think having that influence on your kids, you know, you get to, to multiply that, but also um, letting people see you in the octagon be the kind of referee. And I mean, the, the more and more you do it, I, I have fully believe that you'll become one of the premier guys in the sport. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, clearly, your piloting skills are, are exceptional. Uh, it's just everything you do, you impact all the people around you. And I think that's probably the, one of the greatest things we can do for our country uh, I've always said, you know, <laughs> why are we counting on politicians to change our life yes. when we can do it ourselves? Absolutely. And I think it goes back to uh, setting a higher standard for yourself. And therefore, the people around you will be affected by that and, and expect a high standard from them. Ex- expect them to reach their potential because if they don't, they may not ever. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people may not think their impact on a single person it's can huge. have great affecting cause. But I think about when I was in recruitment for the Air Force and that I give you a great story. I was on Thunderbirds. We went out somewhere and flew an air show. And you know, it's tradition for us to take our little flags out of the airplane and present them to someone. I presented my flag to some young man, talked to him for 30 seconds, took a picture with him, signed an autograph. And I went back to a dare show a couple years later. And that young kid wound up Air Force Academy, F-16 training, currently a Thunderbird. No. So you look at the impact of that one little decision to take time to talk to this. And the influence that it had on him Mm -hmm. and a memory to get him in a position. So, you know, you help some young uh, man or woman out today, be a mentor them, get them on the path, present to them opportunities for success. And the impact that that could have today, tomorrow, and beyond. So that's what makes doing this so fun. You know, I primarily do that with my kids. Mm -hmm. But even when we're out flying, bringing young kids up into the cockpit, let them sit there and, you know, see what it is like. And I usually say something like, why don't you fly the plane for today? I'll go sit in the back and relax. And just to smile and look on their face or their parents' face when they get to take a picture. Man, that's our responsibility to do that, to prepare the next generation to go out and do some great things. So that's crazy. We have fun doing it. Listen, man, we've got to wrap it up. It's always an honor to talk to you, Mark. Absolutely, and and most of all, I mean, 99% of this I know, uh, and I love telling your story to others. It's just, uh, I think, a great value to share with everybody that's listening, and I want to thank you for your time. Always, brother. I appreciate that, giving me the platform to talk. And, you know, we've been great friends for a long time, and that obviously means the most to me. So. Uh, just glad to be here and thank you for your friendship. And I'm sorry, folks, the show was a little long. Uh, well, I shouldn't say sorry. It's a little long. <laughs> I could go on forever with this guy. 
Thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode of uh, Good Light Unscripted, the podcast. God bless and have a great day.